This message comes from NPR sponsor Total Wine and More. With the lowest prices for over 30 years, find what you love and love what you find at Total Wine and More. Spirits not sold in Virginia and North Carolina. Drink responsibly. Be 21. Hey, I'm Kelly McEvers, and this is Embedded from NPR. For the next two episodes, we're going to talk about the war in Gaza. First, we'll talk to Daniel Estrin, who has been NPR's correspondent in Israel and the Palestinian territories for a long time. He's been reporting on Israel and Gaza almost nonstop since the Hamas-led attack on October 7th. Next week, we'll talk to NPR Morning Edition host Leila Fadel about her reporting on Palestinians who are living through this conflict. For today, Daniel. Something that strikes me when I listen to Daniel's stories is that they have this way of going beyond the idea that you're either on one side or you're on the other side in this war. Like this one story he recently did about an American Israeli professor, Elon Troen. Troen's daughter and son-in-law were killed in the October 7th attack. And 100 days later, Daniel went to check on him. The first thing I want to ask you is, um, how are you? Uh, how am I? In Baroque music, there's something called the basso continuo. And if you listen to uh, Bach, there's that bottom line that continues. And uh, my basso continuo is one of uh, sadness. He was also wrestling with how things have unfolded since October 7th. Daniel asked him what his daughter might think about the Israeli offensive in Gaza, the tens of thousands of Palestinians who have been killed, and about Hamas. Here's what he said. I think she would be appalled and concerned, maybe angry, but maybe she would understand. If you know of a better way Kindly tell us, tell the world, what the better, cleaner, nicer way of dealing with the kind of threat that we have to face that has continued, like a phoenix, has continually re-risen after being quashed to achieve its ultimate divinely inspired and commanded goal of exterminating us. He told Daniel he was also thinking about Israelis and Palestinians in ways he hadn't before. The capacity of one nation, however powerful it is, to totally suppress a movement of popular resistance that is deeply rooted in a population is not a very good record. Palestinians are going to need to obtain what they so desperately want which is what we so desperately want, which is a state of our own. Troen is pretty unique. He's able to hold all these ideas at once. That's not how everyone in this war thinks. Sometimes the people Daniel talks to are pretty straightforward in their beliefs. The father of one of the October 7th attackers, a soldier who has served in Gaza. But then Daniel keeps talking to more people bringing in all these perspectives. And even though it can be hard to hear, it helps us see the bigger story. So today on the show, Daniel is going to introduce us to some of the people he's reported on, and he'll talk about his approach to covering this difficult and divisive story. 
And just a warning, you will hear graphic descriptions of war and injuries, and the episode includes the sounds of gunfire and explosions. We'll be right back. Support for NPR and the following message come from Betterment, the automated investing and savings app. CEO Sarah Levy shares how Betterment's innovation can help Americans save. The real innovation for Betterment about a decade ago was taking a set of tools that were used by the ultra-wealthy and making them accessible to the average investor. And that includes tax strategies, that includes dollar-cost averaging, that includes taking a long-term view and not getting distracted by market volatility. These are all sort of tricks of the trade. And what Betterment did is they basically said, no matter the amount of money you have, it's always good to be invested. It's always good to start early. It's always good to save. And the power of being consistent in your habits is really the path to long-term wealth. Learn more about automated investing and saving at Betterment.com. Investing involves risk. Performance not guaranteed. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Capella University. Sometimes it takes a different approach to unlock your true potential. Capella University's game-changing FlexPath learning format is designed to help you learn relevant skills at your own pace, so you can earn your degree on your terms and apply what you learn right away. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Hey, Daniel, thanks so much for doing this. Hey, Kelly, thanks for having me. So... For people who follow the news coverage of this conflict, it can feel like you're seeing two different worlds. You know, the world according to Israelis or the world according to Palestinians. I've been wondering what that's been like for you as a reporter who is based there to navigate that. It is an almost constant sense of cognitive dissonance, Kelly. You know, Israel and the Palestinian territories are this tiny, tiny, tiny piece of land. It's about the size of New Jersey. And people here live so close to each other and yet in utterly different worlds. And as an international journalist, I get to cross into those worlds that the vast majority of people who live in them cannot. And then I try to present those dramatically different realities to listeners. And that has very much been my experience reporting on this current war, but it even felt that way before October 7th. Tell me about that a little bit. So I was covering two societies where each society was turned inward and focused on their own struggles. So in Israel, for example, I was covering last year's unprecedented protest movement. People were pouring into the streets, demonstrating against the most right-wing religious government in Israeli history and holding this vibrant public debate about the very essence of their country. Should the government be more religious? Should it be more secular? And then I would cross the border to Gaza into an entirely different world that Israelis themselves could not enter. And Gaza is this narrow sliver of land along the Mediterranean Sea. It's been under an Israeli-led blockade for more than a decade and a half, ever since Hamas took over there in 2007. And I would cover the everyday struggles of what life was like there for more than two million people who live there who are struggling just to 
to keep a coffee shop running, just to get routine surgery. And then October 7th happened. And these two completely different worlds collide. And the feeling that I'm left with is that nothing will ever, 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 ever be the same here. October 7th, of course, was the day of the attack led by Hamas. According to the Israeli government, more than 1,200 people were killed. About 240 hostages were taken. And then Israel started bombarding Gaza. Ground troops crossed into Gaza. And now more than 29,000 Palestinians have been killed, according to the Gaza Health Ministry. Almost 2 million people have been forcibly displaced. And Daniel, if you experienced cognitive dissonance before... How hard is it to report on this war now? There are so many challenges. I mean, you know, just on the very practical level, there is the challenge of the war zone. And suddenly there are even more checkpoints and barriers and closed military zones and rockets flying above you. But I think one of the big challenges is the challenge to find stories of actual people at the center of all this and really putting a face to the people who are living the war and the people who are waging the war. So tell us about some of these people. How did you find them? Um, A few weeks after the war started, the kibbutz communities that had been attacked along the Gaza border, the military started opening up these areas for, for journalists to see. And the Israeli government was bringing journalists down in, in, in buses. So my team and I boarded this bulletproof bus, and there were probably a hundred other journalists crowded onto this bus. And we were all corralled into this one kibbutz that had been attacked. And while the the government spokesman was giving his speech, my team and I started wandering off. And uh, very quickly, we understood that we we could actually wander around what still appeared to be this crime scene where there were search and recovery teams still recovering bodies. I mean, there wasn't even police tape. We were just crossing into homes that had had been attacked just a few weeks before. Three bullet holes in the glass door. More, even. This is the television set on the floor. You know, the kitchens that were just turned upside down with plates everywhere and the walker on the floor that had been tossed aside in a, in a bedroom of a man which we later learned had been killed. And we found graffiti in Arabic on the outside of some of these homes that were attacked with names. They left their names. Mu'amin, there's a message here that says victory, and the names of the militant groups that attacked it. And it's not just Hamas. You see here the Al-Quds Brigades. That's the militant wing of Islamic Jihad, a smaller militant group inside Gaza, spray-painted in blue and brown and green. Seeing that graffiti of people's names sprayed on the walls on the outside of the homes, it led us to report out a story of who was just one of the men who participated in this day, in this attack. And... We managed to flesh out the contours of, of Muhammad. 
A producer for NPR, Abu Bakr Bashir, spoke with Mohammed's neighbor, who had known him for a long time. And he found out that Mohammed had made it a mile or two inside Israel on October 7th, before he was shot by Israeli aircraft. And his neighbor told us that Mohammed had led a kind of ordinary life. He didn't finish his high school matriculation exam. He'd worked as a taxi driver. He tried to start a business selling food products. He had gotten married. He had a lot of friends and family at his wedding. But everyone in the family and everyone in the neighborhood knew he belonged to the militant wing of Islamic Jihad. His father told us, may God be merciful with him. To be a martyr is a huge thing, and this is what he pursued. I hope God accepts him as a martyr. So we dug deeper. We wanted to understand what motivated people like Mohammed to take part in the October 7th attack. And we spoke to a political analyst in Gaza, Mukhaymar Abu Sada, and he laid out the context. Aggression against the Palestinians for the past 75 years, I believe, is the driving force behind why many Palestinian youth joined Hamas and joined the fight against Israel. He talked about the fact that so many people in Gaza descend from refugees uprooted from their homes in the war when Israel was founded 75 years ago. He spoke about the failed rounds of peace talks that drive support for armed resistance to Israel. There is the poverty and unemployment, the 16 years of a strict blockade on Gaza, and Hamas rulers and other militant groups offered people like Mohammed a steady salary, and they shaped the kind of worldview that we saw spray-painted on the kibbutz homes uh, when we visited there after the attack. So I want to talk about another person you profiled. This was an Israeli soldier. You've actually talked to a lot of people in the military, which is a big part of life in Israel, right? Oh, it's huge. I mean, service is mandatory for most Israelis over 18 years old. Uh, almost every decade since Israel's founding, there's been some kind of military conflict between Israel and its neighbors. Virtually everyone in Israel knows somebody who has served. Okay. So one of your stories was about a soldier, a reservist. He had not been fighting on the front lines, but had actually been inside Gaza. Tell us about him. And tell us how you found him. So we spoke with a young Israeli soldier who went to the same high school as one of our Israeli producers on our NPR team. And he spent two weeks inside Gaza. And then there was a very brief ceasefire. He had just a few days at home. He came home, did his laundry, saw his parents, saw his girlfriend, and uh, sat with us in his backyard with a beer um, the night before he had to report back to duty. My name is Alon, Alon Keran. I'm uh, almost 22 years old, and I was uh, like two weeks in Gaza. He is a logistics guy um, for the Israeli military. And 
His job is to bring in supplies to the IDF soldiers. Water, food, but also beef jerky. Yeah, candies, chocolate, uh, they get sometimes snacks. The days uh, for me are pretty simple. I don't, uh, it's not like uh, a routine for me. We, we wake up, we drink the coffee. You can see the beach and it's nice. Have you seen any, any of the Palestinians? No, any? no, no. Not one. Most Palestinians had already been ordered to evacuate the area, right? So he didn't see any people. That's right. The homes he had been sleeping in, you know, Palestinians had fled. They were sleeping on the, on the ground on, on cots and all the windows were blown out. And he said the flies gathered on his, on his feet at night and in the morning and, and that bothered him. And then they were moved to this other building, which... He couldn't tell, was it a home? It was weird. Maybe it was a pool house. You know, I've been to homes in, along the beach where there are pools. You know, it's not homes, but it's, it's beach clubs in Gaza. And in his off-the-cuff way, he described this utterly changed, conquered landscape. And that area is very safe. So you, you don't feel the war. You, ver- you feel that the IDF, this is his place. So it's not, it's not Gaza anymore. The one time I felt like he opened up and I could see his inner world is when we spoke about the Israeli hostages being held in Gaza. And he said, you know, sometimes I'm in Gaza and I imagine captives somewhere near me. They're being held and I don't know where they are, but maybe they're, maybe they're close to where I'm sleeping. It feels very weird that because of Gaza Strip is very small, when I'm in Gaza Strip, I, I said to myself, uh, so like there is 200 and like 250 civ- Israeli civilians probably v- very close to me. His own neighbor down the street from when we were sitting there in his backyard, his own neighbor uh, who's his age, who he grew up with in high school, is captive in Gaza. And for me, it was just important to see the war through the eyes of a, of a young 21-year-old soldier. This is not a soldier fighting on the front lines. He is a foot soldier. He's without his phone. He's completing his daily missions. And he reflects that kind of sense of disconnect. He's unable to see the wider perspective. You, you can't understand the big picture, so for me it's feel uh, right to be to take part. It's not it's not fun for us. It's not fun uh, for no one. But we have to do it to protect our civilians and to to make sure they can live in their cities safe. So you've been telling us about how in your reporting. You try to find the people who can help us understand the news. But I wonder, do you get pushback for that? Like somehow just by telling these stories, you're justifying what people are saying? Every day. I received pushback for for telling the story of that Israeli soldier while Palestinians are facing what they're facing. You know, I know listeners 
will hear his story and and say this guy is completely disassociating himself from the horrors of the war that his own army is inflicting and he's bringing chocolate and beef jerky into Gaza and and Palestinians are waiting hours in line for bread and you're giving him a platform and we're hearing his voice talk about that you know the, and and the story of the of Muhammad the attacker who was killed on October 7th during the attack on on southern Israel an Israeli acquaintance of mine I sent her that story and she said I'm sorry but my capacity for empathy ended on October 7th you know Israelis do not see the everyday horrors that Palestinians are experiencing when they tune into the nightly news Palestinians have not seen all of the footage of the horrors of October 7th that Israelis are seeing played on a loop on their TV screens. These like two completely separate realities. What do you do with that? Well, I try to remember um, the victimhood that each society is experiencing. And, and I think that's critical to understanding the motivations that are driving them now. You know, I was driving a few weeks ago in Tel Aviv, and uh, and our producer in Gaza, Anas Baba, had just sent me some voice recordings he had gathered of Palestinian families whose children were killed in one of the latest bombardments. And so I'm driving, and I'm listening to the wailing of a woman whose son had been killed in this massive Israeli bombing campaign. Israel had said that it had carried out that bombing to provide cover for their special operations forces who were rescuing two Israeli hostages. And I'm listening to the sounds of this mother, Palestinian mother in Gaza, wailing, and I see a motorcycle driving by an Israeli driving on this motorcycle and the bumper sticker on the motorcycle said, go IDF, you know, go Israeli army. And, and I just thought, my God, you know, look at these two worlds that are irreconcilable. And I, I just think about those two worlds a lot. I think about when my NPR colleague and I went to this screening of about 40 minutes of footage, the Hamas attackers had filmed themselves during October 7th. Um, I was looking down. I didn't watch most of the footage. But just hearing the audio alone, um, even today when I think about it, I feel physically sick. And I think about the images that I see that Anas films and sends me, that I see on my own Instagram feed, skeletons in the streets of Gaza, skeletons of bodies that had not been collected. I never used to be the kind of person who remembered my dreams. And I'm waking up with vivid nightmares. And I think so many of our listeners are too. After the break, Daniel will talk about what it takes to get the story from inside Gaza.
Support for NPR and the following message come from IXL Online. Is your child asking questions on their homework you don't feel equipped to answer? IXL Learning uses advanced algorithms to give the right help to each kid, no matter the age or personality. One subscription gets you everything. One site for all the kids in your home, pre-K to 12th grade. Make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now. And NPR listeners can get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when they sign up today at IXLLearning.com. Support for NPR and the following message come from Rosetta Stone, the perfect app to achieve your language learning goals no matter how busy your schedule gets. It's designed to maximize study time with immersive 10-minute lessons and audio practice for your commute. Plus, tailor your learning plan for specific objectives like travel. Get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off and unlimited access to 25 language courses. Learn more at rosettastone.com NPR. This message comes from NPR sponsor Rosetta Stone, an expert in language learning for 30 years. Right now, NPR listeners can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership to 25 different languages for 50% off. Learn more at rosettastone.com NPR. Okay, we're back. And we're talking to NPR's correspondent in the Middle East, Daniel Estrin. Daniel, we've talked about the challenges of reporting on this war. And one huge challenge is that you cannot get into Gaza right now, right? It's impossible to get into Gaza now independently. Yeah. You can only get into Gaza if you embed with the Israeli military and you see the places that they take you to. And... I'm on the board of the Foreign Press Association here, and we petitioned this, the Israeli Supreme Court to ask them to to grant independent access for journalists in Gaza. Um, we lost that case, and it is absolutely a challenge to cover a war that you you cannot be on the ground to see with your own eyes. Yeah. So to be able to get actual reporting from Gaza, you are working with your Palestinian colleagues. Uh, one of them is producer Anas Baba. He's reported there since the beginning on the mass displacement of Palestinians who had to flee their homes after Israel ordered them to evacuate. So a mother just holding and carrying her five-month daughter that looks totally reddish from the hair. I do believe this is a sunburns. She went for the journey, all of the journeys, just a five months ago. Now he's in southern Gaza reporting on the bombings there. It's a very intensive shilling going around me. Anas isn't just reporting the stories of so many people getting killed. I mean, he's trying to stay alive himself through all of this. The Committee to Protect Journalists says a record number of journalists have been killed in Gaza. I mean, how does Anas talk about all this with you? Anas is really, um, he maintains his composure incredibly. And he is living through the most extreme conditions. Early in the war, he and his family fled Gaza City, where they live, and they moved to his his uncle's building in Rafah, in the southernmost part of Gaza. And as the Israeli military went from north Gaza to central Gaza, you know, approaching south Gaza, all this extended family started coming to, to the house where he is sheltering. 
sleeping in a room with several other men, small room. His dad's there. Hey, Anas. I speak to Anas on the phone uh, basically every day. And sometimes he'll give me an update on how he's doing. Are you still living in a house with 70 people? No, uh, with 120. Oh, my God. How many bathrooms? We do have five bathrooms. And we do have, like, each family needs to clean the bathroom three times a day. There's a routine and everything? We have a routine for the bathroom cleaning. We have a routine for who's going to make the dough tonight. We have a routine for uh, which family is going to make the lunch and what exactly is the lunch going to be. We are now relaying on rice and slower. So Anas and his family have to deal every day with just the basics of food and internet. How does he connect to us and send us the audio and the video and the photos he's been taking? And then there's the war itself, which can surprise you, when all of a sudden there's a blast of an Israeli bomb. And this bomb has landed close to where he is, and he's described jumping into the car, driving through the fog of an airstrike where the debris is still in the air and you can't even see outside the windshield. And he followed the flashing red light of the ambulance in front of him to the site of one of these bombings. People are saying that they can spot a leg under a car that's totally like flown away. And maybe he's under the car and all of the ripples. They left the car using a bulldozer. I can't tell you the number of bodies he's seen piled up at the hospital, at the morgue, the young children who are sheltering at hospitals, who are witnessing these scenes of more and more and more and more bodies being brought in. Unfortunately, I can tell that he's a young boy. And he's totally turned into pieces. You know, there are even parts of Gaza that that Anas himself cannot access now. That the parts of Gaza City, North Gaza, that he fled is now inaccessible to those who have fled. And he found us one of the few photojournalists who did not flee Gaza City and, and has remained um, in that part of, of Gaza. And that photojournalist, Omar al-Qatar, went out and documented historical and cultural landmarks that were the pride of Gaza and what they look like now. An old mosque that had previously been a crusader church that had gone through many iterations over history. and The bathhouse, the Samaritan bathhouse, the last Turkish hammam bathhouse of Gaza. And almost... Every single one of these beautiful places that I and myself have visited in the past and reported on are, are gone now. Hmm. So I'm thinking about how we started this conversation, these you know two worlds that you report on. Is there a story where you were able to kind of bring a perspective from each of these worlds into the same place? Yeah. It was a radio story about radio. Um, you know, when you, when you drive here, you turn the radio dial and you can flip between Israeli and Palestinian radio stations so easily. I mean, the airwaves are literally crossing each other. 
in the same tiny geographical space. And I reported a story about Israeli radio stations that are broadcasting to Gaza to try to reach hostages in Gaza because some hostages that were released earlier in this war said that they had heard Israeli radio in captivity. Hi, I'm Gil Dickman from Tel Aviv. This is a recording of Gil Dickman. He says he's from Tel Aviv. This week, we bid farewell to Kineret Gat, that's his relative, uh, when she was killed in the Hamas attack on her kibbutz. He says she loved to sing, she loved to travel. Two of his relatives were taken hostage and one of his relatives was released from captivity. And she said that she had heard that broadcast when she was in Gaza on the radio and that hearing his voice had given her strength. She said that that was one of the most important things for her while she was in captivity, keeping her strong, knowing that her husband and child are still alive and that we fight for her. Similarly, Palestinians are broadcasting messages to their loved ones in Israeli jails. They've been doing this for years, radio programs that do, you know, the airwaves do reach Israeli jails where their loved ones are being held. This is a voice message from 18-year-old Dima Ali. It was broadcast by a Palestinian radio station. She hoped this message would reach her father, who was taken away by Israeli soldiers five days into the current war. She says, hi, Dad, don't worry about us. Everything's okay. I hope you're well. Hundreds of Palestinians are broadcasting messages like these now on the radio. Except now Israel says that during this war it has confiscated the radios inside jails. We have no connection to, to reach to him or to speak with him. Where's the human rights? Where's the, 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 the prisoner right? Even the lawyer can't reach to him. These are two peoples using the radio to try to reach the people they love. And when I spoke with the, the radio station managers, both Israeli and Palestinian, and said, you know, on the other side, uh, there's a radio station kind of doing the same thing you're doing. They resisted that comparison. But I think this story encapsulates so much truth of, of the reality now because they're not speaking to each other. They are speaking to their own people in pain in very similar ways, almost in a, in a mirror, you know, mirroring each other. And no, no connection, no communication between the two and no, no sense of sympathy or interest in, in putting their pain side by side. But it is, again, a reminder that at the heart of this conflict, there are people with families reaching out who just want to be reunited with their loved ones and who just want to be safe. Daniel Estrin, NPR correspondent in the Middle East, thanks so much for your time. I know you have a lot going on. We really appreciate it. Thank you. Oh, thank you so much, Kelly. 
On the next episode of Embedded, NPR's Layla Fadel will bring us the story of a Palestinian college student whose world has been blown apart. It is continuous. Um, it seems like we might have to evacuate again. But um, I don't think we're moving this time because we've had enough. Plus, a Palestinian-American family who was stuck in Gaza when the war started, but managed to make it out. We hear of bombings. You try to reach out to the people that you live in that neighborhood, and the calls won't go through, and then there's no way for you to confirm. That's coming up on Embedded. If you want to hear the next episode in this series early, Sign up for Embedded Plus at plus.npr.org slash embedded, or find the Embedded channel in Apple. It is a good way to support our work. That is plus.npr.org slash embedded. This episode was edited by Luis Treyas and produced by Abby Wendell. It was mastered by Josh Newell and fact-checked by Nicolette Kahn. The Embedded team also includes Raina Cohen, Ariana Garib-Lee, Dan Gurma, Adelina Lancianese, Allison McAdam, and Nick Nevis. Liana Simstrom is our supervising producer, Katie Simon is our supervising editor, and Irene Noguchi is the executive producer of the Enterprise Storytelling Unit, our home at NPR. Thanks to our managing editor of Standards and Practices, Tony Kevin, and Johannes Dergi for legal support. Special thanks also to Erica Aguilar, Alon Avital, Anas Baba, Samantha Balaban, Abubakar Bashir, Claire Harbage, Tamir Khalifa, Maya Levine, Nuha Musle, Natan Odenheimer, and Sami Yanigun. And to our friends at NPR's International Desk, Greg Dixon, Larry Kaplow, James Hyder, and Didi Skanky. We'll be back next week. Support for NPR and the following message come from IXL Online. Is your child asking questions on their homework you don't feel equipped to answer? IXL Learning uses advanced algorithms to give the right help to each kid, no matter the age or personality. One subscription gets you everything. One site for all the kids in your home, pre-K to 12th grade. Make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now. And NPR listeners can get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when they sign up today at IXLlearning.com. This message comes from NPR sponsor Charles Schwab with their original podcast, Choiceology. Choiceology is a show about the psychology and economics behind people's decisions. Download the latest episode and subscribe at schwab.com slash podcast. Last year, over 20,000 people joined the Body Electric study to change their sedentary, screen-filled lives. And guess what? We saw amazing effects. Now you can try NPR's Body Electric Challenge yourself. Listen to updated and new episodes wherever you get your podcasts.